Hi, I'm Dr. Allison Burke. I study the innovation economy and national security at Stanford University. And I'm Brad Boyd, former soldier and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, where I research the strategies, risks, and opportunities at the intersection of national security, foreign policy, and emerging technology. Today, we're talking to Lieutenant General Retired Jack Shanahan, the former director of the Department of Defense's Project Maven and Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. He now serves as a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and consults with the Department of the Air Force at National Academy of Sciences on autonomous systems. After retiring from the Air Force in 2020, Lieutenant General Shanahan completed a master's degree in international studies at North Carolina State University. We're going to hear about some of the work he did at NC State, including the General's take on tensions between the U.S. and China on AI, the role of AI in the war in Ukraine, and what the U.S. and China might be able to do to prevent proliferation of AI technology that is rapidly changing assumptions about national security. General Shanahan, thanks for having this call with us today. Tell us about how the development of AI-enabled applications could escalate tensions between the U.S. and China. Sure. Well, again, Brad and Allison, I'm very, very happy to join you. I'm glad you're doing this uh, podcast. And these are important topics. And when I retired and decided to go back to grad school, I, I always had on my mind um, thinking and writing more about artificial intelligence or AI in, in the United States and China. So as my capstone research project, which is what this paper represents, it, it, it is about international relations theory and a, how AI and the security dilemma are connected. When one state begins to arm itself for security in under this international anarchic system, the other state automatically begins to assume because it doesn't know anything other than to assume that that state is taking offensive actions. And when one state begins to arm, the other state begins to arm, the other state then takes the same reaction and you get into what's called an escalatory spiral. The argument, argument I make in the paper is artificial intelligence could be one of those triggers that will escalate the spiral or cause the spiral to, to begin to really accelerate. If I'm sitting in the United States and I look at China and say they are taking artificial intelligence capabilities and putting them into their military systems, they may claim this for defensive purposes. They may claim they're just trying to protect their state. But what we will see in the United States is that that is aggressive behavior. It's an offensive military system. It is destabilizing. If I'm putting myself in Beijing and looking at that same situation, I have the exact same reaction the United States had about China. They're doing this for offensive military purposes. They're moving very quickly. They're making all these declaratory statements about we will not lose. The United States will not lose its position in the world. We're going to be the world leader in artificial intelligence forever. Whereas in China, they're saying something to the effect that by 2030, China will lead the world in artificial intelligence. So now there's two states that don't trust each other to begin with. They see each other beginning to put AI-enabled military systems in place, and then it begins this escalatory spiral. Worst case that I can imagine is, as this begins to accelerate, you end up, one or both sides, could end up fielding systems that are unsafe, untested, unproving, and we end up in an AI race to the bottom. <laughs> And what would it mean to lead the world in AI? Like, what capabilities would you see from either side where you would say this, they definitely won? You know, that's an excellent question, Allison, because I can come up with a, a dozen different metrics to describe what it means to lead the world in AI. Uh, you could look at, and, so, and there are reports that do this, very good reports that come out of Stanford, as a matter of fact, and looking at who's leading the world in, in various categories of artificial intelligence. You could look at talent. 
You could look at academic institutions to include advanced degrees. You can look at hardware, compute capability, how much compute, where is it, how expensive is it, and so on. You could look at number of patents issued on AI capabilities. So there's, you know, it, it, realistically, you could look at about a dozen different capabilities. A different di dozen different categories for metrics on who's leading the world, and it turns out for those people that are really studying this closely, uh, there are there are categories where the United States still leads the world, um, especially in academic institutions overall. Down, I would say in some categories of innovation, depending how you measure that, China is leading the world in other ways by the number of papers they're now producing, by the number of patents they're applying for related to artificial intelligence, and I don't think it's a surprise, the amount of data they're able to collect from across the country. Data is, in many cases, an inherent advantage when it comes to uh, putting out AI-enabled capabilities into a sort of production. So to lead the world, we, we tend to think of this, uh, that this is a binary answer. The U.S. is losing the race in AI against China. I hate that characterization because it doesn't mean much to me, and it shouldn't mean much to any other, any, anybody else. Because it's not one category. It's overall the United States. The United States remains overall one of the strongest, if not the strongest, uh, power. And it comes to all these different categories blended together. But China is catching up very quickly, and I would expect they will continue to do very well over the, over the next few few years. And and at some point will um, probably be on a par, if not certainly be on par with the United States in some of these categories that the United States has led the world for the last few years. When you when you talk about this, you have the paper, and I think most of our discussion, we, we tend to focus on the military aspect of this, military applications of AI. I'm wondering, in, in the security dilemma that you described, do the commercial applications contribute to the same level? And if so, or to some grade of that, how do you see that fitting in commercially? Well, so that's, that's a great point to raise because as I discussed in the paper, one of the complicating factors in this whole idea of a security dilemma is AI's dual use, dual nature um, categorization. So when we say dual use, it generally can be used in civilian applications and in military applications. What has changed the story with AI, unlike almost every other military technology you and I are familiar with, for let's say the past, you know, whatever, 100 years plus, has been developed in the military for military purposes. And then, you know, some of those have spun off into commercial applications. Or, you know, something like NASA and the Race to the Moon, all these things came out of the government, but they had remarkable spin-offs into the commercial world. Now what we've seen over the past decade is a reversal of that situation where these AI capabilities are coming first and foremost out of commercial industry. It's not that the military is not doing you know, great world-leading research in AI, they are, but what they're not doing is feeling it anywhere near the speed of commercial industry. So we're seeing these capabilities come out of commercial industry that then the military is using, they're adapting those capabilities for military purposes. So it's hard to, to say in a binary answer that this is a military capability or a commercial capability. I, I look at this almost like a Schrodinger's cat, uh, where it's both alive and dead simultaneously. You don't know until you open the black box. Well, in this case, it could be military, it could be civilian, it could be offensive, it could be defensive. You really don't know until you see that 
being used in a particular application. That's what really makes this uh, different and more complicated than looking at traditional military hardware systems where we could say the U.S. leads here, the U.S. leads here, China leads here, Russia leads here. That was the way we did things during the Cold War. And you sort of just wrote, here, here are the things we need to be thinking about in ICBMs and bombers and fighters and satellites. So much different today. And we don't know yet for a lot of these systems how much they'll change when AI is, is kind of integrated into them. That further muddies the waters, right? We don't know if you add AI to this fighter that the fighter then becomes five times better, 10 times better, 100 times better, or no better at all. It's a hard question to, to answer, but this is one of the reasons we, we ought to be looking very closely at all elements of AI to be able to assess how the United States is doing vis-a-vis -vis China. One thing that I, I've been thinking about lately is that um, the war in Ukraine, and I, I'm not the first one to think of this, other people have called it sort of the Spanish Civil War of our day, you know, 1938 or whatever, uh, a lot of different things being tested in Ukraine. Um, and now the Chinese aren't really involved, but we do get to see a lot of AI players in there. Russia, uh, Turkey's got equipment in there. Um, Israel's got equipment in there. The U.S. has equipment in there. Um, how do you, when, when you look at something like, like Ukraine, what are we learning from AI employment in Ukraine? And how does that affect the overall geostrategic uh, position of nations like China, the U.S., Russia, India, Turkey, etc. Yeah, to be honest with you, Brad, what we're seeing is uh, there's really not much AI being used, uh, as far as we can tell, both uh, by Ukraine or by by Russia. Now, the United States is using some of its Project Maven capabilities, and, and I'm sure some other capabilities are being used in support of what's happening uh, in, in Ukraine. But in general, I think what you're seeing is uh, there are some some uh, really significant developments in things like small tactical and attributable drones that are being extraordinarily effective, especially when, when employed in, in, in dozens uh, simultaneously. I think what we're seeing is what will lead us to more countries being interested in swarming drones that eventually could be not only swarming autonomous systems, but AI-enabled autonomous swarming systems. And that's going to be a very uh, challenging future for a lot of different reasons. When I think about what you said applied to Ukraine, I mean, there's a massive opportunity to collect extremely valuable data that you cannot get anywhere else. Um, does, is there a scramble for that kind of data, do you think? And what sort of advantage does that convey to the players that are trying to hoover up that unique data? Any AI capability needs data uh, data that is operationally relevant that whatever data you may have in, uh, in in coming out of the sea of japan or south china sea east china sea that is different than the data you're collecting over ukraine and, and that is fairly obvious once you start training these these different systems they really need to have uh, to be to be tailored to where, where they're going to be used. So I think what they're saying is, okay, what can we do with the data that's being collected? Because there's an, an enormous amount of data, everything from commercial social media data to the most sensitive satellite systems on the planet being used to see what's happening in Ukraine. And figuring out how do I how do we use all of that data to then make operations uh, more effective in the future? Have we seen any major AI-related breakthroughs in Ukraine? It's not, we're not seeing breakthroughs in the area of AI, but what we are seeing 
is going to convince a lot of countries that tactical small drones, um, communications capabilities that are readily accessible and resilient, electronic warfare capabilities, and sort of things like that, that uh, could be even better if they had AI capabilities applied to them. So I think what we'll see is a lot of interest in taking the lessons that, that people are learning from Ukraine and then saying, well, what, what, what difference would it make if we had AI capabilities uh, integrated into all these different systems? One thing that we've talked about before is sort of, okay, you make these, make an agreement, whether it's a treaty or a policy or whatever, uh, between nations or between organizations. How do you verify that that is being followed when it's very difficult to see what actually has AI in it? Yeah, this, this is one of the dilemmas, to use the term, um, that we're going to be facing here with these new technologies. And that's why I can go back to my paper. My recommendation at the end of the paper is for the United States and China to enter in a state-to-state, -state, what we call a track one dialogue, to begin talking about these very issues related to AI. You know, a part of this is just setting the stage for the discussion. Let's agree on definitions, just not as simple as we would think. You know, the idea of a, what is a lethal autonomous weapon system? I can promise you, having been in some of these meetings, the United States and China define that term a little bit differently. And it could be actually a lot differently depending on who's at the table. So first of all, agreeing on key definitions. But then this question of, of what can we, where can we find areas of agreement to say, as a starting point, agree on the uh, non-proliferation of AI-enabled autonomous weapon systems to non-state actors? Pretty narrow in scope. But I believe, I think the United States and China would, would agree in principle on that. Now, it becomes much more difficult when you say, well, I need to verify. Let's say we come to some agreement of, that we will not put AI capabilities into the decision-making, the final decision-making process for nuclear weapons. So it's not into the intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, not to some of the decision support systems. I think we all agree that there will be some AI capabilities throughout these architectures and network. But if, when it comes down to a human making decision, we agree that we don't put AI in, in, in these systems. How do you agree on that? I'm not sure you can right away in terms of what we would do in the past in, in terms of arms control treaty uh, verification, right? As I said earlier, this is not an ICBM you can verify. It's not a bomber, a, a, weapon, a nuclear weapon on a bomber that you can count. It's not how many carriers you have that, that have certain capabilities. This is hard to discern, very hard to discern when you might have an AI-enabled capability in the system. So with the starting point, it may be just to have the two states agree that these are the things that we need to keep talking about. And let's agree on some general principles as that sort of initial, as that so-called point of departure, because verification is going to be extremely difficult. I imagine over time, it, it might get a little easy, uh, easier technically to start understanding what an AI-enabled system looks like compared to any other system. But right now, that's not possible. Uh, I just have to look at its behavior. And maybe that's sufficient right now, right? It's just, just like any other capability. It's how the system performs, not what any individual component is in that system, unless we're talking about nuclear weapons. And then, of course, it is a very different conversation. Interesting. And how a system performs is based on the quality of the data used to train it. 
if we employ high quality military systems enabled by AI, we have to have high quality data to make them work well enough to be safe and effective. In fact, you could tell the performance level of an AI enabled system by looking at the quality of the data used to train it to some extent. If China and the US could see each other's data, would that help to reduce tensions? Whatever agreements the United States and China might reach in terms of AI, I can promise you neither side is going to say, well, we agree that you can look at our data. That's not going to happen. Uh, we protect that. So that, that is our operational uh, secret sauce, as it were. As you said, this is what you use to, to get a performing algorithm it is the, the data from, from an operational environment. So we're not going to reveal that to each other. It seems that states have incentive to secure their weapons-grade data, if you will, to prevent an adversary from seeing the secret sauce, as you called it. Why else do states need to keep data secure? We have to expect an adversary is coming after our data. And let's just say for the sake of argument that we would do the same to an adversary. That, that has not changed in the history of conflict. You're always trying to get the advantage uh, one way or the other. And if I can get to somebody's data, I can poison their data, I can corrupt the data, I can make the algorithm perform uh, way different than initially expected. There's all this, all this work underway that people are very familiar with now an adversarial attack. So then I have to protect my data. I have to protect my data in ways that I can't let that out of uh, you know, government hands. And I would expect China would take the very same approach. Now, when it comes to the sort of military system, I put that in its own category. It is so operationally sensitive. The last thing we can afford is to have corrupted data, not realize it, that day one of any crisis or conflict, it turns out the algorithms work horribly. And nobody knew it because someone on the attacker side had to disguise what they had done to that data. So yes, I, I agree. I think you know, we, we ought to be careful about um, sharing you know, particular sets of data or kinds of data. Yeah, but it's so easy to move data and software that it seems like it would be really hard to keep AI-enabled military capability from proliferating to other states or especially non-state actors. Is there a feasible way to prevent proliferation? I suppose, but that gets pretty hard to do. You know, Brad, you're, you're, you're already alluding to this with uh, when we talk about AI, it's very hard to stop the proliferation of compute, to stop the proliferation of algorithms. Uh, can I stop the proliferation or restrict the proliferation of chips, semiconductor chips? Yes. Uh, hook hard, not, not impossible to do it, but especially on some of the more advanced, you know, five nanometer chips. That may be, that's a different subject, but I think maybe states could come to some agreement on that. Now, are they going to proliferate anyway, just like weapons proliferate around the world? They are, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do something about it. It's easy to be pessimistic in the face of technology that we don't completely understand, whether it's artificial intelligence or quantum computing, what have you. What's your take on the future from here? It's, well, you know, it's a, I'll just say it's an exciting time to, to be watching the development of all of these capabilities related to AI. I go back to what I always talked about, this idea of exponential rate of change. It's what makes this tech. There are always similarities in any technology in history. We tend to always focus on the current era and say, this is unique, this is different, this is novel, this is this is innovation unlike anything we've ever seen. And then you'll have people who have studied it for a living say, not so fast, let's go back to medieval age and, and or in the agrarian revolution and say, look what technology did worldwide. I do believe when it comes to the rate of change, 
this is different today. And the idea of these capabilities being self-learning systems, that it's unlike any software in the past, will make the difference. We don't know how it's going to affect societies worldwide. We, in some cases, it will have great benefits. There are other cases where it can be, do great harm. And that's what we have to be careful of and be very deliberate in our approach. And in some cases, uh, this technology has fallen flat on its face. So not everybody's convinced that that future is, is maybe as bright as uh, I, I've been portraying it. Many thanks to Lieutenant General Retired Jack Shanahan. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Octagon Podcast.